So you hear people complain these days that everything is becoming automated. The robots are stealing our jobs. AI is coming. The Terminator scenario, you know. But I think that ultimately people don't really have a reason to be scared because I think that what artificial intelligence ultimately comes down to, what outsourcing our cognition into the machines is really all about, it's about amplifying the most powerful phenomenon in the universe, which is intelligence. We're finally learning to reverse engineer, distill, understand, reproduce intelligence. Once we can create sentience that is not bound by the bandwidth of our physicality, of our biology, we'll literally be creating a sentience that can upgrade itself. Minds that create minds, computers that build better computers. And at this point, the runaway train that literally is speeding up at an exponential rate will leave everything behind. The human era will have ended. We will have become our creations. They will be our children, but they will really be us. There is no reason to fear this. This is just evolution. Listening there to Jason Silver and artificial intelligence. Are the robots taking over? Well, we're talking science this morning with Rowan Roberts, who is the director, founder of SciFest Dubai, along with Adam Griffin, who by day is an occupational therapist at the Kamali Clinic, but by night is a science boffin enthusiast and uh, loves to question and challenge and even do, I don't know, courses online that are free, but you get a nice title that you've just been to Stanford University to study. <laughs> And joining us this morning to take your questions on 4001 and Café Scientifique, which is a meetup group every month uh, that Rowan organises and everyone's welcome. And the next one's on the 26th of June and the topic is going to be on artificial intelligence. Yeah, well, uh, uh, we decided to choose the topic of artificial intelligence because there's been a spate of movies uh, of late on the theme of artificial intelligence. And also, uh, uh, alongside artificial intelligence, we'd like to talk about uh, the technological singularity, just as a way of consciousness raising and making people aware of this concept of technological singularity. Um, and what does that mean? Well, uh, the uh, the term comes from physics. It's inspired from physics. So in physics, uh, the, the mathematics prove that uh, in a black hole, at the center of a black hole, all equations break down. So we can make predictions about what happens to matter and energy as they pass through the event horizon of a black hole. But once matter and energy reaches the center of a black hole, that's the singularity, all mathematics breaks down. So we make that connection with uh, society and the exponential growth of technology. So exponential growth in technology and genetics, nanotechnology, robotics, um, quantum computing, neuroscience and space exploration will all combine to usher, uh, usher in a period where we can uh, achieve greater than human intelligence, start to upload our memories and consciousness to computers and essentially live forever. So those of us living pre-technological singularity will be in no position to discuss or even imagine what life will be like post-singularity. And uh, um, uh, this idea has been propagated by Ray Kurzweil, who is now the uh, head of engineering at, or director of engineering at Google. And Bill Gates calls him one of the best predictors of future technologies uh, in the world. And Ray Kurzweil puts the technological singularity at 2045. Now, that might seem worryingly soon, but if you look at the rate at which technology is growing, um, it's not that as soon as we think. And so we want to prepare people for the advent of this uh, 
hypothetical moment in our in our near future and just get people to share their views and share their concerns and just talk about the issue and that's what you're going to be talking about at cafe scientifique on the 26th of june does what how do you feel about this adam you you work with people i mean like rowan you know you're uh, from a teaching education background uh, you're working with gems you know training the teacher so you're used to working with people adam you are an occupational therapist you work with young people here in the uae uh, does it concern you that it might all become about the computer and be about almost like what we would, what we call the robot? You know, with a lot of caveats, slightly, yeah. And um, normally me and Rowan are very much on the same page in most scientific stuff we talk about, but I do agree that it's the advancements in science and technology are marvellous. But there are those checks and balances are usually, it's important to have them in place. But in this case, it is super important. that there was, There's an interesting guy called Nick Bostrom, who is a philosophy professor in Oxford, and he wrote a book called Superintelligence. And this technological singularity, the, the other way that he discusses it is it's the time when the kind of the... The artificial intelligence reaches a human equivalence, really. It's, uh, super intelligence is it's as good as or better than human intelligence, but not just in analytical things. Because to be honest, computers beat us in a lot of things already. They're more intelligent than us in many, many ways. But yeah, I mean, just imagine uh, every day when you're just trying to do something on your smartphone. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, oh, on a caveat, it's really interesting, actually, for this, because there's people talk about a lot that a computer beating a human being in chess. This was one of the big kind of landmark things was when uh, Kasparov played a computer called Deep Blue, and there was it became a real competition, and Kasparov won and Deep Blue won. But then one thing happened in the story of this, that... Deep Blue did one move that Kasparov couldn't figure out and almost drove him mad. Kasparov was an intense guy in a way, but he said, this makes no sense. I do not know why the computer did this. And he agonized for it. He was pulling his hair out and then found afterwards it was a glitch. It was mm. a bug that the computer didn't mean to make that move in the first place. But since then, it's beat him and now it beats everybody, hands down by a long way. But superintelligence means not just that manner. It means better than the best human brains in practically every, every field, including scientific creativity, general wisdom and social skill. So it's across the board. But the worrying thing for me is it reached that super intelligence and then it surpasses it vanishingly fast. It, it develops really quickly from there. So you have people like Rowan mentioned Bill Gates, that one of the kind of biggest guys, just not saying let's smash all the machines and go back and live in the woods, but people like Bill Gates and Elon Musk and Stephen Hawking saying that just we need to have this just have the checks and balances in place because Elon Musk called it summoning the demon and you can't put the demon back in the box. Yeah, once it's out. Exactly. He won't want to go back in. So you have these little rules in place to make sure to the extent that Elon actually invested $10 million of his own money in an AI program just to really have a hand in the game of this. Yeah, just going back to um, the the anecdote uh, Adam mentioned about uh, Kasparov losing to Deep Blue. If you read... um, uh, Kasparov's own uh, an analysis of it and what other commentators have said uh, Kasparov was a very intimidating player he would win very often by intimidating his opponent and what he found was he couldn't intimidate uh, the computer and so that was one of the factors in uh, in the in, in why he lost but just uh, adding on to what Adam's been talking about artificial super intelligence um, some of the figures and numbers are really quite mind-blowing and I'd like to share a, a, a few um, Ray Kurzweil who Bill Gates says is the best predictor of future technologies, uh, predicts that by 2029, we will have reverse engineered the human brain. By 2050, 
$1,000 worth of computing will purchase a computing power, processing power equivalent to every human brain thinking. And by 2080, $1,000 worth of computing uh, power will, will purchase processing uh, power equivalent to 10 billion human brains thinking for 10,000 years, and computers will do it in 10 microseconds. Wow. Yeah. Now, oh. Yeah, another nice thing. This guy called Nick Bostrom said thing that something that really clicked with me and said this idea of artificial intelligence, when we create it, it is it the best human invention? He's not sure, but it will certainly be the last because we won't really need to invent much after that because the inventing and the creation and that will be far surpassed our ability to do it by the machine. Well, all I can think hearing this is, one, wow, it's not that far away. It's not that long away. And two, if you've got great minds and innovators, scientists, physicians, uh, no, physicists rather, that are saying, like Hawking, like Bill Gates, that are saying, slow down and just be careful. We need to take, we need, you know, the people in power need to take heed of that, don't you think? Yeah, that's true. Uh, but I don't know if we can really stop it. Now, for a lot of people, uh, it, it's difficult for them to appreciate the difference between linear growth and exponential growth. So uh, a, a nice way to understand it, uh, the difference is if you took 30 linear steps, you would reach 30 meters away. But if you took 30 exponential steps, you, that's 1, 2, 4, 8, 16, 32, you'd reach a billion meters away. That's enough to go around the planet 26 times. That's the rate at which technology is growing. Brain mapping technology, uh, nanotechnology, robotics, uh, brain scanning, all these technologies or even computing are growing at that exponential rate. So I don't know how we're going to stop it because if one country or one government decides to slow down, you can bet the other countries aren't. They're going to speed it up. So we're in this, in this race already. And so what we really need is an educated public. Uh, who don't get their information from Hollywood, but from proper science, scientific discussions, from uh, educated um, uh, panel discussions and things. And uh, that's what we need. We need an educated public who can take rational decisions and not base their fears on Hollywood films. Well, if you want to get involved in this discussion some more in an informal setting, then uh, why not go to Cafe Scientific on the 26th of June. Uh, revised times because it's Ramadan hours, so it'll be in the evening, Rowan. It'll be in the evening from from 7 to 8.30 uh, at Urban Bistro in Media City. Now, we've posted up on our website uh, all the details to connect with Rowan and uh, SciFest Dubai and Cafe Scientific, so website and contact details so you can find out more. But our discussion continues, and uh, one of the, uh, another area that you're involved in is astronomy, Rowan. And when we come back, we'll be catching up with what's been happening with the astronomy group here in the UAE and taking a look at a question from Vinay, who says, a thousand years ago in India, how could the astronomers distinguish between planets and stars without telescopes good question let's uh, let's find out from the guys when we come back what their thoughts are on this the Hubble Space Telescope has given us a view of our place in the universe that's unparalleled we built a machine that could take us on a tour of the universe we're on the most incredible journey and it all began with Hubble to see so much deeper into space, to push the frontier of what can be known. Hubble reveals a breathtaking perspective on the true size of the cosmos. Newly discovered galaxies, thousands of them. But this is just the beginning. Exploding stars. 
spectacular galaxies keep on, keep on coming. Our deepest, most profound view of the cosmos. You can see the great beauty flying through space so far away. The dimmest detail from the farthest reaches of space. Humanity's new window on the universe. These are images that will be remembered and in some sense even revered. Hubble points once more to discover what else lurks in the dark. Exploding stars. Spectacular galaxies. Keep on, keep on coming. Our deepest, most profound view of the cosmos. Hubble's extraordinary capabilities are due to the scientists and engineers who helped to turn humanity's dream of a space telescope into a reality. One of the things missing from science is music. And what John Boswell, uh, this remix mashup artist based in the UK, does is he takes these talks from various uh, scientists and philosophers and he mixes them up into these two-minute uh, musical clips. And what we have here is one based on the Hubble Telescope anniversary. And he takes uh, uh, quotes from Neil deGrasse Tyson, the cosmologist, and Stephen Hawking, whom we were talking about earlier. And he puts them into these beautiful two-minute videos. Uh, and if any of the uh, listeners are, are curious, just go on YouTube and type Symphony of Science and you'll find a bunch of these beautiful videos. And it just inspires and, uh, again, it creates that interest and enthusiasm and, uh, and uh, the inquiring mind to know more. And I know, of course, you're passionate about science, Rome, but astronomy is also an area for you that you're really passionate about. Exactly. I mean, I run uh, an astronomy club for students uh, and an astronomy club for the general public. It's called the Cafe Sci Astronomy Group. And uh, what we want to do is get people to be excited about uh, the, the universe, to look up for for a change and spend the weekend instead of clubbing out there in the desert, you know, looking up at the stars and, and wondering about our purpose in the grand scheme of things. I think, uh, as Carl Sagan said, astronomy is a humbling and character building experience. And once you realize how vast the universe is, that there are more stars in the universe than there are grains of sand in all the deserts and beaches of our planet, we start to realize that our delusions of grandeur, uh, the amount of time we spend on weapons and, and war is just insane. It's so pointless and meaningless and I'd encourage everyone to take an interest in, in astronomy it really is a mind-blowing field well uh, Vinay had texted in saying a thousand you know we're asking you to text in your questions when it comes to science or anything that you have a, a query about that you have that uh, inquisitiveness about then let us know on 4001 but Vinay says a thousand years ago in India how could the astronomers distinguish between planets and stars without a telescope yeah, and there's one very easy way actually if you even take the name of the word planet from the Greek planetes. And that means, in Greek, that simply means wanderer. So that's what planets do that stars don't. So if you look up in the night sky, the constellations stay in the same place, so we know what Ursa Major is, because those stars stay in the same formation all times. But Mars doesn't. You have to go looking for Mars. So if you have something like um, the Google Sky Map or those little apps, they'll track it for you and show you where to look. But that's what planet means. It wanders across the night sky. It doesn't stay where it's 
doesn't stay in the same place all the time. And if there are people who are curious, uh, you can actually see Jupiter and Venus. They're very bright in the night sky. In fact, the two brightest objects in the night sky, if you look out uh, this evening, will be Jupiter and uh, and Venus. And you don't have to look all over the sky uh, to, to discover planets. Planets are always aligned and follow the same path as the, as the sun. So the stars uh, and the planets, uh, sorry, the planets will rise from the same portion of the sky where the sun rises and it'll follow the same path that the sun uh, sun follows so it'll follow uh, the same path from east to west so look out yeah. you'll see jupiter and and venus this evening i think it's amazing too when young people start to realize all there is to see up there it's not just a uniform blanket of these twinkly lights that they can see the planets that they've heard of. They can see the ISS as well. They can track it and find it with a little app also. So we are kind of impressed when we find these mm. things. It makes me think actually just yesterday I attended the ladies lunch at the World Trade Club and they invited me to give a little talk afterwards and in fact I was interviewed by Jane and it was a lovely afternoon so if you're listening everyone that was there yesterday thank you very much. It was I really enjoyed it and uh, they asked me to share some of my stories working in radio and some of the places that I've visited covering stories for the show and uh, so there was a little uh, slideshow and up came the pictures of me in Peru and in Mongolia and with Gulf for Good and it took me back actually looking at the uh, pictures in Peru and sitting on the side of a mountain and when you talk about feeling humble they were moments of incredibly humbling moments for me not only working with the charities and the children but being that connected with nature and of course when you look at Peru or you look at South America and you look at ancient tribes and uh, the Quechuan people and the whole sort of Inca uh, period in history and how and of course this is around the world as well for medieval and, and ancient times but I really got a sense of because you're so high up and close to the sky and the stars at night were incredible and how before technology this was how people measured their day, navigated themselves around from getting from one destination to another but also how they survived as well so I found that incredibly humbling that experience. Yeah exactly I mean nowadays we spend our time in front of a computer screen or the television but back in the day uh, for our ancestors the night sky was their television every evening after a long day's work they'd crowd around a campfire and uh, tell stories about the stars and that's why we have these beautiful stories associated with the constellations and, mm. and, and, and stars. And good morning to Kevin he's saying one of my favourite discussions when out camping in the desert when you can really see the stars is what is infinity what does space where do, does space really go does space really go on forever lots of profound questions and i'd encourage him <laughs> to join our astronomy group this is just the kind of stuff we talk about you know big questions very difficult to answer in in a few seconds but come join us at cafe scientifique you'll find lots of other people who have similar thoughts and it's a great way to engage with like-minded people yeah, absolutely. Even if they can't find, even if they can't in the space of like a two-hour talk find out the answers to the life of the universe and everything, if it is in reality 42, as Douglas Adams suggests, <laughs> but then you will get some other good questions in that. And I think that's, the, that's one of the keys is it's not that important to have all the answers, but it is important to ask the questions. Well, Vinay is still asking those questions. How did they know that there are other planets also? And then pick them out of millions of shining objects. Because the short answer is planets move. They move in the night sky, uh, like Adam explained. Uh, so Jupiter is here this evening at the same time, but tomorrow evening it's at a different place in the sky. So uh, uh, they're called wanderers because these planets move in the night sky. So we, with our naked eye, you can see Mercury, Mars, uh, Venus, 
Jupiter, Saturn and Uranus. You can also see Neptune, uh, but because Neptune is so far away and takes so long to go around the sun, it almost appears to be motionless. So our ancestors didn't realize Neptune was a planet, even though you can see it with the naked eye. One of the most impressive things for a lot of people, and it it seems kind of intuitive to think, how was this done so long ago, was you have these prehistoric civilizations understanding things about when you look at... uh, Monuments built in Mexico, the Incas and Aztecs, even in uh, in Stonehenge, or in, we have a great example of this in Ireland in a place called Newgrange, which predates the pyramids. It's over five thousand years old, but it's set up and it's built in such a way that on the uh, winter equinox, the sun shines right down through this passage grave, and it's a stunning, stunning thing. But they knew so much about these celestial bodies over five thousand years ago because they were predictable. It was something, and it's man's natural impulse to understand the world around them. So that was their best theories at the time. There was druids and pagans and people who were the hawkings of their day, and they were describing the universe with the best evidence they could see. And if you, Sorry, Ryan. Yeah, back in the day, they'd build uh, Stonehenge and the pyramids and things, align them with the stars. And we have to remember that uh, our ancestors had more or less the same brain that we do. And they were curious in the same way. And so while they would build the Stonehenge and, and the pyramids, what we're building are space probes and Mars rovers and things to actually go out there and, and, and explore more closely. Uh, I don't know if you have time, but one of the most poetic things that I, I can think of um, is the the Voyager 1 space probe that was sent to take pictures of the outer planets. And uh, it, after it completed its mission, it was just set to drift out into space because uh, it had finished its mission. But Carl Sagan, the cosmologist, uh, asked the mission control commanders at, at NASA in Houston to turn the cameras of Voyager around and take a picture of Earth from uh, 6 billion kilometers away. And Voyager 1 took that picture, this, it sent it back to us. And when we processed the image, we discovered it had 600,000 thousand pixels of mostly blackness and earth was half a pixel and that image is now famously called the pale blue dot and Carl Sagan writes these poetic words about his reaction to that to that image and makes you realize how fragile and lonely our planet is and if that fraction of a pixel disappeared um, who would care for in the grand scheme of things you know it'd just be another planet that's disappeared so it just makes us realize how important it is to cherish life all life mm. on this planet yeah he called it a mood of dust suspended in a sunbeam and if people did nothing else online today but found the pale blue dot video it's one of the most important things they'll do today. Well, I think Linda, our producer, is doing that right now. And we're going to post it up on our website, uh, the Dubai Eye page, and Dubai Today. Click on the Dubai Today and also connect with us via our Facebook page as well. Takes eight minutes just to reach your eyes Inside It's all atoms making up our minds But if you Think that learning science isn't meant for you Or just not cool there are formulas to prove it now Better study up, I'll show you how We're about to throw some science down Evolution with your brain, heart, spinal cord And also your eyes Medicine with the vaccines, technologies that keep you alive 
Every time that you eat, read, text, or take a selfie and smile No signs ain't out of style Science never goes out of style You love those iPhone apps that help you flirt But it was the STEM field majors who designed it all first Even with our lab coats and goggles will make you thirst Science never goes out of style Science never goes out of style Throwing science down this morning with the guys behind SciFest Dubai and Cafe Scientific. That's Rowan Roberts and Adam Griffin. And listening there to a parody of Taylor Swift's song. And uh, yeah, you source this, uh, Rowan. I love it. It's by a group called Science Style. I'm not familiar with their other stuff, but I thought this was pretty... Uh, are pretty intelligent. <laughs> <laughs> and again, just putting it all into one bag, you know, when it comes to technology, science, and it's not being cool, but it can be cool. And we should have the inquiring minds and we should be questioning and thinking and listening, being in tune with the world around us. Exactly. Um, yeah. I think it makes that one makes a nice counterpoint to the Symphony of Science ones. Rowan's always bringing in the, the art stuff in for, to join it with the science things. And I was like, the Symphony of Science, is, it always reminds me of like you have these other big subjects worthy of awe, like Handel writing about religion or Wagner writing about the North mythology. So then we have these amazing awe-inducing things in science the symphony of science guys do but then it can also be something as fun and interesting as a little acapella cover of a taylor swift song <laughs> yeah one of the things we do at uh, sci-fi dubai is we have an astronomy themed art exhibition and we encourage local artists to uh, paint on the theme of uh, space and the universe and we use it to educate people about planets and stars and nebulas uh, it's a great way to involve artists as well in in science you know and uh, that it's been hugely successful in the past so uh, alongside each painting we have sort of scientific description of the planet or or the or the uh, or the comet or something else and it's, it's a way to educate people about about space so music is a great way to educate people about science so the SciFest Dubai is happening from October the 4th through to the 9th now how can we get involved in this I mean obviously to attend but maybe we want to be showing something we might want to sponsor the event um, how can the community be a part of this which is growing in numbers I know as you spread the word when it comes to science in the UAE. What's wonderful about uh, this year's festival is we've uh, partnered up with um, uh, the Science Film Festival, which is organized by the Goethe Institute. And that's an international science festival. Uh, it, it takes place in 13 different countries. They've had uh, nearly half a million people visit. And so this time we've partnered up with it. So we've got a bunch of science films uh, showing, and then we have workshops and debates based on these films. Uh, but how the community can get involved? Well, we are a community-based uh, festival. Everything that we do is uh, is, uh, is local talent and, and help and volunteers from the local community. So just uh, get in touch with us. Send us an email if you want to be involved um, and um, we'll, 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 we'll find a way uh, to make that happen. Uh, just visit the website at scifestubai.com and there's, uh, there's a contact page. Get in touch with us. Have a look at the internship opportunities, the volunteers uh, opportunities and we'll make something happen. And uh, answering questions like why do zebras have stripes? And I was saying, you know, those black stripes as Linda says, you know, there's the white stripes as well. So however you want to uh, think about it. But why do zebras have stripes? Well, here's a response for you. Let's have a little listen to this. Zebras. 
They're kind of the David Bowies of the mammalian world. Isn't David Bowie a mammal? There's no question that the stripes are stylish, but why do zebras have them? Well, a lot of theories have to do with camouflage, and this may seem counterintuitive given the distinct lack of zebra print environments in nature, but really, camouflage can work in a lot of different ways. Like, sometimes it's about the pattern, not the coloration, because to a colorblind lion, these stripes blend in nicely with tall grasses. Zebra camouflage may also work through optical illusions. As highly social animals, zebras live in herds, and when they're together, all those stripes can make it hard for a creeping predator to single out any one of them. A herd of striped equines may look like just a big blob of crazy. New computer simulations of zebras in motion even suggest that specific and spectacularly disorienting illusions are at work. Have you ever noticed how when a spinning wheel reaches a certain speed, the so-called wagon wheel effect kicks in and it starts looking like it's actually turning backwards? Or how even though that iconic barbershop pole rotates horizontally, it looks like those stripes are moving up and down? Well, a herd of moving zebra can induce both those types of optical illusions, helping to further confuse predators. It also seems that striping may help ward off biting insects, which is awesome because a lot of insects have diseases. Horseflies, for example, are typically attracted to dark colors over light ones, but researchers have recently found out that narrow, densely packed striping is basically the least attractive coloration to hungry horseflies, less appealing than either solid black or solid white. So maybe these stripes are a natural bug repellent. And interestingly, zebra's striped patterns are as unique as fingerprints. No two are the same, so they may even help the animals recognize each other. There you have it. Zebra stripes. There you go. Fabulous and functional. Yeah, fabulous and functional. Zebra or zebra, tomato, tomato, however you want to say it. But there you go. There's an answer for you. Uh, So what questions do you have this morning when it comes to Science 4001 or via our Messenger app? Uh, One question that came in earlier is why is it, and this is actually quite funny because we're in the office this morning and... uh, cleaner was uh, vacuuming around us and one of my colleagues said I really hate the sound of a vacuum cleaner and I was thinking oh vacuum cleaners don't really bother me and then it made me think sound is an interesting thing I work in the business of sound and audio why is it that certain sounds can really annoy one person and not another Oh, absolutely. Um, You've inadvertently stepped into my specialist area here. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I work with a lot of kids who have a thing called sensory processing disorder. And they process sensory information that could be lights and sounds and touches very, very differently from everyone else. So for some of the kids I work with, the like feeling of a scratchy sweater or even like the labels on their shirts and this annoys some some children a little bit for my guys it's incredible it's like having a big rose bush down the back of their shirt and they can't stand it same as the noise of like in the studio right now there's an air conditioner going on and it's barely audible you certainly wouldn't hear it over the microphones but to some of my kids that would be blaring it would be like an oompa band sitting in the room with them so they they process things differently and everyone has this on a continuum as well we all process sensory information differently for example my wife who's listening I'm sure back in Ireland right now I she can't this is I'm going to point out my wife being a little bit weird now the <laughs> idea is she can't watch westerns because they look a little bit dusty and it makes her nose feel dusty and she can't like if I want to annoy her all I do is take a big like a ball of cotton wool and start pulling it apart and yeah, that strandiness of, like of the, cotton wool, the cotton like, wool oh, thing yeah. freaked out so there you go yeah. I love you weird wife oh, what's her name <laughs> her name is Amy oh Amy well I hope you're listening there in Ireland and uh, everybody else around the world listening to us here on Dubai today another question that came up Rowan was why do we get nervous right uh, to be honest I haven't really thought about this one but 
if I could just go back to what, uh, uh, yeah, Adam, you can answer this, but just going back to what Adam mentioned, uh, adding on to it, uh, when sound signals reach our ear, they go to two places. They go to the sound processing uh, part of the brain in the temporal lobe, and they also go uh, to the amygdala, which is the more primitive emotional part of the brain. And so uh, based on your childhood, based on uh, nurture nature, um, different sounds can trigger different emotional responses. Uh, and there is, uh, very quickly, there's a, there's a neurological disorder called the Capgras delusion. And uh, in the case of this patient, he met with an accident, hurt his brain, and um, his mother came to visit him in the hospital. And he said to the doctor, uh, doctor, this woman looks like my mother, she sounds like my mother, but she's an imposter. Uh, but then the mother went, left the hospital, and gave him a phone call, and everything was fine. He accepted her as his mother. So after a lot of investigation, they discovered that the, uh, the, the, the accident had damaged the temporal part of the brain uh, that connected uh, the visual uh, impulses to, um, to the brain. So when he saw his mother, uh, he could recognize that she was his mom. But the connection to the amygdala, the emotional part of the brain, was lost. So he couldn't feel the emotions uh, that he ought to feel when he saw his mother. So the only way he could rationalize it was to say, she's an imposter. Mm. But the connection for the sounds was intact. So when he heard her voice, everything was okay. She was still his mother. Yeah, it's actually it's something I did as an undergraduate back in when I was working in acute hospitals back in Ireland. I actually work with some people with this with this issue. Sometimes you see it aspects of it in stroke rehabilitation, depending on the area of the veins affected. And it sounds like one of those curiosities, like oh, you think this, you think your loved ones are replaced, and typically it's replaced by like government agents or people like that. So it's the, they're they're other, they're not who they're pretending to be. And but it is devastating for the person involved as you can imagine. There's actually a specific one I work with personally that it's the same idea that something seems like that's not right, but it's for your own part of your body. So after a stroke rehab, this person had, he was intact for one side, but he knew his arm wasn't his arm. So he'd wake up in bed and really scream because it was an arm in his bed that wasn't his arm. Wow. And so it's terrifying. It's amazing. And it's how, how complex your brain is mm. and all the, the neurological fireworks that's going on there. And that ties in with why we get nervous. Uh, we, s- the simple reason is we get nervous because we feel threatened. Yeah. And there are two ways of being threatened. There's f- being physically threatened and psychologically threatened. And so uh, nervousness is just your body's response to being in a threatening situation. Well, have a listen to this and why do we get nervous? And uh, yeah, as you say, Rowan, when it comes to how the body is reacting to fear, possibly the adrenaline that's created within the body. Whether you're waiting for an exam, about to start an important presentation, or at the start of a race, we've all experienced nervousness. But why do we get nervous, and could looking at professional athletes help us understand how to effectively cope with it? In stressful situations, your brain sends a signal from the pituitary gland all the way to the kidneys where your adrenal gland resides, and this is where adrenaline is released. You've felt it before, the rapid heart rate, dilating pupils, and increased circulation in your muscles. It's all part of the fight-or-flight response, which developed in our evolutionary history to help us survive. But this response isn't all or nothing. There are degrees of reaction according to the perceived threat or importance you attach to the outcome. So something like an interview, which presents a challenge, stimulates the same biological reaction that a threat to your life does. 
just to a smaller degree. Feel those nervous butterflies in your stomach? This is because adrenaline helps redirect blood and energy to the most important parts of your body during stress, like the heart and muscles, and away from your digestive system, causing the blood vessels to close around your stomach, leading to that tingling sensation. So, how do professional athletes handle the stress and nerves? The concept of mental imagery is a widely used method in popular sport. With cognitive-specific imagery, an athlete simply imagines themselves practicing a technique or skill before competing or training. And while it may sound crazy, this actually stimulates the relevant neurons in the brain and has been shown to enhance the specific skill. Motivational-specific imagery, on the other hand, encourages athletes to recall the feeling of winning an event or beating a competitor as a motivational tool. Finally, motivational general mastery is commonly used by athletes to feel more confident. Again, by simply imagining themselves as focused, tough, and having positive thoughts prior to competition, athletes are able to improve performance and overcome nerves. Confidence, in particular, is a consistent factor that distinguishes successful athletes from others, and a major focus for professional coaches. So, next time you feel those nerves kick in, try preparing like an Olympian would. What are you waiting for? On your mark, get set, go. So, why do we get nervous? We were listening to the clip there,、uh, Adam. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, why we get nervous? This is kind of a, an interesting one for me. It is a bit of a vestigial hang-up. So it's a something that is hanging around from our ancestral days, as the the video clip showed. So this flight or flight response, if we our ancestors were on the kind of plains and see the tall grass ship, it's much easier to go. That might be a tiger. I better hot foot it out of here rather than going. I wonder what that is. Let's have a look at it. So it's natural. It was had an evolutionarily bias to do that. What、so、was in our best interest to do it. But now we have the same. Response not for tigers, but for public speaking or、yeah. or something like that,、yeah. and so it just it's overcompensating from a neuro- neurological standpoint. But、um, uh, in mental health, we also work with some people who this is working super hyperactively. So then you have a thing that's a condition called generalized anxiety disorder, where you're at a constant state of anxiety. There's these fight or flight responses. They're totally.、Um, Out of what would be appropriate for the situation, but they govern your life then, and they take over your life. So it's a little nerves can be good, and they can kind of fire you to better action and make you your best self. But sometimes it can be a little bit overwhelming. So it's where to find the balance. Now we were talking earlier. Somebody texted in when we their question about war, and、uh, one of our listeners has come back on that and said, "I think war has been and is being used to revive the economy."、Uh, I was reading the last Dan Brown novel, which says that the population of the world is already past the sustainable figures. Climate change is a real thing. Eleven、uh, hundred people have died in India this week、um, due to the heat wave. So、uh, war. But in this person's case, they're saying actually climate and climate change is the thing to be really concerned about. Yeah, do you know what one of the main challenges is? Is it as a kind of global society, it's very difficult for us to organize on a global scale. So countries and communities and societies can get mobilized and energized behind certain topics, but we're so diverse and we have such ranging opinions, values, and personal interests that, as a planet, it's really difficult to mobilize to one one goal like that. It's very interesting. Actually, Rowan mentioned earlier on one of my favorite videos: this Carl Sagan's pale blue dot idea, and this is one of the things he says in that. Video is that you see we're all in this together, but it's very difficult from our point of view. It's difficult to see that when you look from looking back through the rings of Saturn as the space probe exits the kind of solar system, you see, yeah, we really are in the, this together, and we kind of got to get along to make it work. 
And uh, something that's heartening is this latest news story, which came out a couple of days ago. Uh, this a bunch of Swedish designers have created a flag for planet Earth. And essentially, it's it's got a blue background and seven concentric circles. So the blue of the flag is just the right blue. It's not too dark and it's not too bright. It's just the right blue that would stand out against the white uniform of uh, an astronaut and against the blackness of space. And the seven uh, concentric circles... Um, sort of symbolize the seven continents and the way it's been designed is the circles come together to form a flower and the flower symbolizes planet earth so i think this is a great way to raise consciousness and when we have our first human on mars instead of planting the flag of america or russia or china we plant the flag of planet earth i think that's a great way to symbolize our unity and our togetherness as a species well space mission uh is back in the press this week locally uh, space mission has messaged for the world a bold plan will drive economy and inspire youth coming out of the uae absolutely extraordinary news they're spending a hundred million dirhams over the next five years on developing this and part of the space agency's mission is to send um, uh, a probe to to mars and they'll send the probe in 2020 and it'll, it'll rendezvous with uh, mars in 2021 and it's a very special window we have during 2020 and uh, if all goes to plan the probe will um, uh, stay in orbit around Mars for for two years and sample the atmosphere of Mars and send back tons and tons of data so that's very exciting and what's really exciting is it's unique in the Middle East uh, I think what's great about Dubai is how much interest is being shown by the government by the rulers in space exploration I think it's a vastly important field and uh, just uh, the the forward thinking shown by uh, the, the sheikhs is just extraordinary uh, it's a great time to be alive exciting things are happening and I'm very pleased to be in Dubai Fantastic. It's so inspiring, isn't it? And uh, lots of news stories, but, uh, you know, we are running out of time. So we've selected just a, a couple here. And uh, one here that I wanted to talk about, well, you know, really, Adam, it's one for you, I think. So true virtual reality. So the next big advance in home entertainment. Oh, my good. I am so <laughs> excited about this. It's ridiculous. Um, this is the thing called the Oculus Rift. So Oculus Rift started off as a Kickstarter. It was a small little idea to make a kind of a virtual a true virtual reality headset that people could use for more immersive gaming so if you imagine you're in a video game playing with controller looking at the screen it's a bit of a kind of this thing called a Brechtian alienation device it takes you out of the story a little bit it's hard to get so immersed in it even though with the amount I sometimes play these games I get pretty (laughs) immersed Uh, so it would be a way to really get into the game and now it's grown so much to the extent that Mark Zuckerberg bought um, very very it was a big big news story bought Oculus and there's a huge amount of investment now and it's seen as this is the next big step so it's not just for playing like teenagers playing video games in their bedroom and think oh my god now he's going to be literally in another world not just figuratively but they're looking at it for imagine going to see a a rock concert where everyone can be in the best seats of the house any athletic competitions and it's in real time it's happening but you can sit in the seats and look around an immersive 360 degrees so it's a new way to actually immerse in the entertainment experience and uh, it can be used in the medical profession. It can be used in training for, as, as a, a simulator. Yeah, they already are doing it, in fact. There's, uh, there's uh, neurosurgeons using it to literally almost stepping into the brain using the Oculus and it's a specific version of the Oculus software about training uh, surgeons to do this. And it's spectacular. And it's getting a level of kind of detail and resolution that's just not possible any other way. So it's a really big advance. You had small things like 
big TVs and 3D TVs. Which I never really liked 3D TVs, <laughs> but Oculus is a huge step forward. And you mentioned that you were, you had to go out. When Suzanne mentioned she had tried it in Australia, I nearly fell out of my seat because I'm so anxious to have a go on some of my games using the thing. Well, this happened when I was being shown around. I was at the Qantas headquarters in Sydney, and uh, they were showing me around their simulator and behind the scenes, the science and research that goes into the cabin and how their Qantas planes are put together, the total experience for the consumer. And then they uh, allowed me to go into first class, the first class lounge. And in the first class lounge, you can put these on and it will take you into another part of Qantas, into a, the ca- different cabins, into different areas within the airport. Yeah, it's quite something. Wow. It's going to be wow. mainstream very shortly too. So you can buy, you can already get like the developer kit for it, but it's going to be in the stores from next year, from 2016 is the big release for it. And you think it's going to be fantastic. So you'll even see a lot of the young guys I know are really excited when they see some of like the video games where you put on the headset, but you're also on like a 360 degree treadmill as well. So you can move around and walk and engage with the game in all levels of experience really. So it is, it's very exciting stuff. Well, it's been great and exciting talking with you guys this morning, as always inspiring me when it comes to uh, science, the inquiring mind, asking those questions and finding the answers. And if like Kevin, when you're out there in the desert and you have those big conversations like about infinity, you know, where does space really go? Does it go on and on and on forever? It may be that you never quite get to the end, to the answer, but it's great. The journey is amazing. The conversation has been great. So, yeah, you can continue the conversation at Cafe Scientifique that's being held with Rowan and the guys. It's very informal. All are welcome. It's happening on the 26th of June. It's happening at the... At Urban Bistro in uh, the Media City, the CNN building. And we've posted up on the Dubai Today page and on our Facebook page as well. Uh, details for you to connect with Cafe Scientifique. And indeed, SciFest Dubai, which is happening later on this year from the 4th to the 9th of October at Children's City. So if you want to get involved with that. So for now, but just before I let you go, Rowan, anything for us to look up for tonight? Look up to the skies or over the next few weeks? Uh, well, generally, uh, Jupiter and Venus are really bright, and there's going to be a conjunction in a, in a few days. I'm not sure exactly when I'll have to look up my app, but uh, I suppose the highlights would be uh, Jupiter and Venus uh, appearing fairly bright in the night sky. And also just the realization that what you're seeing is the light from long-dead stars, this traveled light years to get here. Everything around you, when you look with this frame of mind, with a scientific perspective, it's all amazing. <laughs> Adam Griffin, Rowan Roberts, thank you very much for talking with us today. Thank (laughs) you so so much. much. And I'm going to leave you with a bit more of the Taylor Swift parody as we celebrate science. I'll be back with you tomorrow from 10 a.m. Have a great day. Science ever goes out of style. 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 Science ever goes out of style.
never goes out of style. Science never goes 